I have a confession to make. I have read and recited the Magnificat hundreds of times. It's regularly a part of morning prayer and evening prayer throughout the year, not just at Christmas time or in, in Advent. But if I've ever studied it or preached it in depth, it's been long ago, and the memory of that encounter has faded. So this week, when I got back into this text, it was like starting over. And I've wondered, I, I haven't really wanted to admit this publicly, but I've always kind of wondered, why is this psalm, the one that we sing and cite in morning prayer and evening prayer frequently all year long? There are 150 psalms, and all of them are the Word of God. Why is this the one that we keep, in a sense, coming back to again and again? But this week has changed my perspective and answered that question. God's Word is God's Word, and it's all God's Word. But this particular song that we're going to be looking at came at a very special moment in the history of salvation through a very, very special person. And it pierces us and exposes us. And I've got to tell you, my, my, my problem this week or today is going to be how to distill all that poured into my soul into just one sermon. Because I really think three sermons are cooking around right now. And for your sake and mine, we'll just try to get one in, okay? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And I want to give you in just an overview very quickly, and then we'll dig into some details. The background, of course, is the Annunciation, which I'm sure uh, my dear brother Art Going preached well last week. This wondrous encounter between Mary and Gabriel in which the miracle of the virgin birth and the incarnation were announced. Uh, her response has become an icon of submission and trust to the Lord. And I have no doubt that Art uh, spoke this or that you've thought about this, but just to imagine what it must have been like for Mary to have her entire life and everything that she dreamed about changed in a moment. And everything that she had expected had to be laid aside because of the risk of this birth. And yet, in complete submission, she said, let it be done to me according to your word. And that's where we ended the conversation last week. In uh, the next few days, we don't know exactly how quickly, but before anyone knew what had happened to her, according to verse 39, she arose and from her home in Nazareth went south into the hills of Judah in order to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who she knew had also been uh, the gift, had received the gift of a miraculous birth. And I don't, according to the text, nobody told her to go. It came out of her own initiative. And so you can only begin to guess why did she want to do this. Well, well, think about it. She had had an incredible experience that she could not really share yet with anybody. And it was a miracle. And she knew that there was this other person who had had some similar experience. And so when you encounter something, even though you may know it to be absolutely true, you've heard this calling from God, you've been a part of a miracle from God, you do want to talk about it and debrief and ask your questions and get some confirmation in this process. So even though Mary had absolute, I think as as strong a faith as we can conceive of, in a human being. Nevertheless, she was a human being, and she needed to have this reinforcement and to encourage encouragement to talk with somebody else who would understand something of what she had just experienced. Now, there was something else that I think she would have encountered, even though she didn't maybe think about this ahead of time. There are two great sources of shame for a Jewish woman in ancient times. One of them was to be childless, And Elizabeth had walked that road for years, maybe 30, 40 years she had been childless, and she had borne the public shame of being childless 
But then the second and even greater shame for a Jewish woman was to be pregnant out of wedlock. And Mary was about to enter that road. And so both by way of simply being able to encourage her in terms of the miracle that she'd received, but also I think as time went on and the bulge in her belly began to grow, the wrestling through the shame that she was going to experience when she went back home and everybody knew she was pregnant, they had those two things in common. But what she got, I think, is so much more powerful, is so much more wonderful. God knew something even deeper because she may have been going, as you and I might go, if we receive a miraculous calling or experience, we want to talk it out with somebody. So I think she went with that in her mind. But look what happened. In verse 42, she walked in to the door. She didn't say a word. She didn't explain anything. She didn't say, oh, Elizabeth, you got to know what happened to me. She walks in the door and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke prophetically to her without any prior knowledge. And she exclaimed, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is he, she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. This was a prophetic miracle. And think about it. As Mary went through life, how much would she need to hold on to the memory and the realization that this child she was bearing and this child she would bear was the miraculous incarnate Son of God. And in that, she needed a reinforcement that was completely outside of herself so that there would never be a doubt in her mind that she had misheard or that something was going on that got fogged in her mind. And she had for the rest of her life the memory of Elizabeth speaking, this is my Lord in you. You are carrying my Lord. And she could remember that for the rest of her life. What an incredible blessing of God. And I want to just pause here and say, I want you to look for that sort of thing in your life. (laughs) Uh, One of the things I'm going to be doing as we go along is just saying that what Mary experienced is an icon for us, an example for us. It's not just for her, but it's the sort of thing that happens in the mercy of God. And when God speaks a calling into your life, I want you to remember that people will confirm that calling in your life. And I want you to remember those confirmations. And when God speaks miracles into your life, there are others who witness. And you can share these things. And I want you to hold on to those things because God gives us great encouragement as we seek to walk with him. Hallelujah. Amen. Mary broke into song after this. It's the Magnificat. It's a beautiful lyrical poem. It's thoroughly Hebrew in its thought and manner of expression. Uh, It's biblical in its content, almost wholly made up of Old Testament quotes. And you kind of ask the question, how did this come to be? All pious Israelites knew the Old Testament Psalms from childhood. They sang them in their homes, sang them at celebrations, sang them at synagogue. It's, It's what they did week after week after week. Clearly, Mary was raised in a believing home, a pious home, and she had imbibed in the phraseology. And her song is is an extolling of, of praise and worship. 
And again, I, 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 there's so many things I could pause and just say. I want you to realize that if you look at ancient history and you look at ancient worship, this sort of thing doesn't happen. What you hear is songs of begging the gods for things instead of praising the lords for their gifts and their goodness. But Israelite worship is steeped in the knowledge of who God is. And that's what Mary is singing. Praise, worship, gratitude. And keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that at the end of our conversation today. A lot of people see a connection between the Magnificat and the song that Hannah sings after she gives birth to Samuel. There are some similarities, but there are, I think the differences are greater. And I want to just comment on that because if you go back and read Hannah's song, Hannah, Hannah's song has, a, has an edge to it, okay? She was uh, singing a song of triumph over her rival. She had this woman who was her, her, her co-wife, if you want to call it that. What do you call the second wife at the same time. I don't know what you... Is that a co-wife? You know, co-worker? Huh? Sister wife. wife? Uh, That's generous. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Very generous. Because this other rival taunted Hannah all the time. You don't have any kids. You don't have any kids. And she mocked her. And it was a bitter, bitter life for Hannah until she became pregnant miraculously. And when Samuel was born, she really, in a sense, taunted back. Ha! I got you. Well, there's not that edge in Mary's song at all. It is just simply gratitude. There's a depth rather than an edge. And it's a depth of beauty and calm and rest and trust in the Lord. A, a maturity that's beyond her years. There are four themes. Sort of stands alike. <laughs> hanging in my mind on four words. This is how I break it down. The word magnify, the word mercy, the word militancy, and the word, except it's two words, made good. I mean, what do I mean? Well, the song begins, literally, the first word is magnify my soul, the Lord. It's a command. Mary is counseling or commanding herself. Magnify the Lord, my soul. Rejoice, my spirit, in the Lord. Magnify the Lord. Make him great. In the very depth of her being, in the totality of her soul, she exalts and magnifies God. Mercy. Throughout, Mary is amazed into worship at the mercy of God, his undeserved kindness and blessing on her and on those beyond her. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me, holy is in his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I've received the mercy of God, but it's not limited to me. It's for all who fear him. There is a militancy that's here, this mighty reversal, the theme of revolutionary overturning of systems, of human powers, a militant rebuke of human arrogance. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart, brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate, filled the hungry with good things. And if you were to draw this scenario out of 53, 51, uh, excuse me, 51, 52, 53, you would see almost like a circle. And just look at the words and how it goes from one to the other. And it comes full circle, and the full circle is the dismantling of human power systems and the exaltation of a different value system. God is operating on a different value system. And then finally, Mary says God has made good. He has made good on the promises that go all the way back 2,000 years to Abraham. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. So here are the four words. In all of these things, Mary is magnifying God for his mercy, his militancy, his mighty reversal, and for his making good of his promises, his faithfulness. So those are the content of her song, and in all of it, she's simply magnifying God. And I want you to remember something. Magnifying God, and Mary sets a great example for us, does not come out of our imagination. I mean, our imagination helps us to know how to magnify God, but magnifying God, making God great, and by the way, the old Saxon translation of this was, my soul greatens the Lord. I like that one. Making the name of God great comes because God has acted in history. In other words, he has intervened. He has done something which reveals who he is. And that's what Mary is saying. God has actually done something. He has acted in history, in my history, in my story. And he's acted throughout history in mercy to overturn the systems, to keep his promises. Therefore, I make him great. I declare that. Let me expand on what she is singing about, the the, the wonders of God. First of all, the mercy of God. Verses 47, 48, 49. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and so on. From the world's point of view, Mary is a nobody, and Mary understands that. She understands that literally from the people around her, from the history of the world's estimation, from anybody who would look on her, apart from this moment and what it means, she has nothing to commend herself to the world. She's not a community leader. She's not rich. She's not successful. She is a poor, insignificant woman who has no estate. She's unnoticed. She is forgotten. In monetary terms, she's a nobody. In social terms, she's a nobody. In educational terms, she's a nobody. In power systems, she's a nobody. Look at her. My humble estate. He has looked upon the humble estate. She gets that. She doesn't speak that out of bitterness or complaint. Do you notice there's no tone of frustration with that? It's just the reality of who she is. She accepts that. She doesn't argue against it. She doesn't shake her fist. It is who she is because she knows from her story, from history, that God doesn't judge as the world judges. He does not dance to our tune. Jesus, if you remember in the Gospels, said to the people, the Pharisees, he said, you played a tune and expected me to dance to it? Guess what? I don't dance to your tune. I don't judge the way you judge. I don't look at people the way you look at people. David, I look upon the heart, not on the outward appearance. I look at people differently. I see people differently. And what God has done by doing that is dismantle all of our pride and open the door for all of our receptivity. In other words, whatever your pride system is gets out of the way. And you realize that what God is looking at is what we all have in common. That what you have in your heart and what you can have in your heart is what is in common to what anybody else can have in our heart, which is a receptivity and a humility before God. And that's what he's interested in. So no matter what else you have externally, God, you can have what God is looking for, right? Mary understands that. So she sees that she is a nobody in the world's terms, but okay, fine. She also sees herself spiritually 
in need of a Savior. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God. What are the next two words? God, my Savior. God, my Savior. Even though she's pious, even though she's an example of a true disciple, she is still a sinner. And she has no expectation or demand that God would favor her. So when he does favor her, she simply is filled with joy. Her own words dismantle any speculation that she herself was sinless because she says, I need a Savior. In our human reasons, we might come down to the fact that the sinless Savior had to be born by a sinless mother. But in fact, that does not fly with Mary's own testimony because Mary's own testimony is is that she needs a Savior. And God in his mercy is her Savior. And so now... In mercy, in spite of her human smallness and in spite of her human sinfulness, God in mercy has blessed her. So she has become an icon of the mercy of God to the nobodies, the anybodies, the every woman, the every man of the world. And if we look to her rightly, we will see her not as someone who will bless us, but as someone who calls us to stand with her before God and say, look what God has done to us. For us in his mercy. It is the mercy of God. Mary will be the Theotokos. The God bearer. But it is the mercy of God. That is shouted out by that fact. And what we see. In this story. Is a I think almost a distillation. Of the fact that the way God has acted. In all of human history. Is through mercy. He's not given us what we deserve. And we are called by this. To look for mercy in our life. This may be a supreme case, but it is how God works. So she says in verse 50, he who is mighty has done great things. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Let me just stop here a second. The entire story is climaxing in the outpouring of mercy. Mary says this is the same story that's been singing all along. If you look at Israel... And I'm from a Jewish background, so I can say, be, be, be pretty frank about that, okay? Uh, Israel is, if anything they're outstanding in, it is they're outstanding for their unbelief and faithful, faithlessness. This is not a people who somehow or another uh, welled up within themselves a beautiful view of God and lived up to that in, in reality. God called them from nothing. The smallest of all the people. And they failed him consistently, but he never failed them. He kept his promise, mercy upon mercy. So she comes back in verse 54. He has remembered his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mary herself is is a declaration of mercy. Wonderful story. But as Charles Spurgeon notes in his sermon on this text, Get this, is there any true believer who has also not received special favor from the Lord? Is there any one of us who calls the name of Jesus Christ who could not look rightly at our life and say, God's mercy is overwhelming in my story? My story is a story of the mercy of God. I was thinking about this this morning when I was taking a shower, and it was just unbelievable to me for me to start to, res- to think about the mercy of God in my life and to remember just as quickly as I can, as short, uh, short an arm as just remembering my wife who has stuck it out with me for 43 years and the way that God has used her 
as an anchor to my soul to keep me from going insane and doing insane things. It is the mercy of God. And God's mercy has been poured out again and again in my story. Mary, in the mercy of God, incarnated the Word of God in a very unique way, right? Got it? Do you not realize that every one of us are to incarnate the Word of God in our stories? Our story is to be a statement of who God is and what He's done. So I just invite you, please begin to look at your life as as a story of mercy and to realize that God is playing out His mercy in your life and allow that to begin to filter into your perspective and your understanding of yourself. And you and I have every reason and opportunity to to rejoice in the mercy of God in a way that's unique to us, but that is a way that God will speak to the world of who He is. So tell your story. Tell your story of the mercy of God. Mary magnifies God, secondly, for his militancy, his revolutionary overturning of human powers. Now, it may sound a little strange to you to introduce into this Advent Sunday um, the reading from Genesis 3 and the curses on the serpent. But I want you to think with me because there is a way in which this comes together. When sin entered the world through the actions of the devil in the form of a serpent, God intervened in the rebellion and declared and pronounced a curse upon the devil that he would ultimately be defeated and completely crushed. The person who would crush him would be the seed or the offspring of the woman, which, by the way, is a phenomenal, miraculous promise in and of itself because the word that is used in Hebrew is translated into Greek, sperma, through the sperm of the woman. And even the Greeks and the Hebrews knew that women, that was not the woman's part. (laughs) So this is just a weird statement, through the sperma of the woman, okay? So this is a prediction of something that is just beyond understanding. But it is a statement of such mercy. The immediate reference was to Eve. The one who first sinned would be the one God would use to bring about the remedy for sin. Woman who bore such self-induced dishonor was declared to be the center of God's supreme re-honoring of humanity. The immediate reference was Eve. The ultimate reference was the second Eve, Mary. Who would be the bearer of the one who crushed Satan, Jesus. So there is this militancy here that in the mercy of God in bringing the seed through Mary, there would be a crushing. But here's the amazing thing about the militancy. The overturning of the systems comes through what? A tiny baby. And it is the joy of this moment, the joy of this moment that literally rebukes the power systems of the world and says, you are nothing compared to what God can do in our lives. And the, and the baby speaks back against the arrogance in the halls of the academy or the arrogance in the government and arrogance in industry, the arrogance in our own souls. The mighty are dethroned. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I won't take time to read it, but was read to you today. Remember who God has used. Remember, not many mighty, not many wise, not many great. God has chosen the things that are not to confound the things that are. So welcome to the family of the nobodies, okay? That's who we are, right? Amen? A little response from you guys, come on, let's go. You're not that far from North Carolina, you know. 
Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you. And all of this adds up to a magnification of God's faithfulness. He's remembered. He is remembered. He started out this whole plan of redemption through outpouring of mercy. By calling a man and separating him and making him a nomad and giving him an outrageous promise of countless descendants. This was outrageous not only because the guy was a person who didn't even know God. I mean, we have no knowledge that Abraham had any idea of who God was till God came tapping on his shoulder. Knock, knock, knock. Guess what? So he called him to be a nomad and Abraham followed and promised him this outrageous promise of countless descendants, but he happened to be married to a woman who was either barren or maybe he himself was incapable of producing child, children. It's kind of tough to have as many descendants as the stars if you can't even produce a child. So it began, right? The story of redemption is a story of the mercy of God and the dismantling of human systems. And it's always been that way. And it goes on and on and on. And Mary is basically the last stop at least the current stop in this ongoing story of the mercy of God in which God has kept his word and he's dismantled our systems in favor of the mercy of God. This is how he always acts. This is what he's always done. This is what he's done supremely through Mary and through Jesus. He's kept his promises. And in the end, we come out with this, and I don't think we venerate Mary, but we do learn from her. Because she is an amazing example of a person who's the, who receives and responds to the mercy of God. There are three elements of her character that I want to just lay before you as we conclude. One is simply humility. Mary is a person who understood herself rightly. See, we teeter in between arrogance and worthlessness. I know I do. And I can be arrogant, and I can presume, and I can be proud, or I can swing over to the other side of it, and I can think myself absolutely incapable of the blessings of God. And in fact, that's where I land more often than the first, but the fact of the matter is that is just a twisted version of the first. Because arrogance and worthlessness come from the same root, which is pride. And it is the dismantling of pride which is necessary for us to see ourselves rightly. To see ourselves rightly means that we are neither presumptive of the blessing of God, nor are we incapable of the blessing of God. But we simply see ourselves as people who do not deserve what God abundantly gives. And that leads us, I think, to the second part of her character, which I think is extremely important, and that is receptivity. See, humility is the ground of our soul which allows us to receive the promise of grace in the Word implanted. And when the Word gets implanted in a humble soul, when we receive it, it can begin to bear fruit. Now, what an incredible application to Mary, a humble person who receives the Word of God in order to be implanted in her soul to bear much fruit. Well, you can't get much clearer than Mary on that one, right? And her receptivity that comes out of humility meant that the word was implanted. But I want to bring it to you and me. Because right here, I was looking at this text and I'm going, God is saying some things to me. God is saying some things to me. Well, I received those things implanted. He is saying right here that his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Well, I received that. Well, I believe, well, I believe that his mercy will be my story. 
Because my inclination is to believe that somehow or another, at the end of my time, I'm going to screw it up. And I'm going to make a mess of this thing to the point that it's, that it's a waste. And I will have lived my life, and I'll blow it at the end. Now, why do I think that way? If there's a psychologist here, I don't want to talk to you, okay? <laughs> but it is what I struggle with, that at the end of the day, I'm going to make a mess of things. And my wife is constantly saying, remember God, remember God, remember God. And God is saying, remember me. I read chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Do I believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe God looks at your soul according to his word and is pleased with you? He sees you through the filter of love. Will you receive the word implanted? Will you receive the word implanted? Humility, receptivity, gratitude. Because if there's anything I see in Mary's story, it is gratitude. It is this explosion of thankfulness to God for the undeserved blessings in her life in which she has received the promises of God to bear much fruit for his sake. Has God not made those same promises to you and me? In his mercy, to implant in you the promises of God through which great fruit will be born? So how do you respond with gratitude, with faith that says thank you, that rejoices in what God is doing? If you look at your life as a symphony, and I think it's an illegitimate way of looking at it, I, I really enjoy great music and Make some attempts at it sometimes myself. But what is the bass note, the bass line, the theme of your life? What is, the, what is the music that plays no matter what the externals are? What is the theme that keeps coming back time and time again to express itself out of your soul? Well, let me just end with a little quote from Charles Spurgeon. This guy preached about 150, 175 years ago. And he, he's, he's just an astonishing guy. Do not be staggered, brothers and sisters, but honor God, glorify God, and magnify him by believing great things and unsearchable pasture finding out, which you know to be true because he declares them to be so. Let the ipsa dixit of God, the so it shall be of God, stand to you in the place of all reason, being indeed the highest and purest reason for God the infallible speaks, and it must be true. So then I come back to where I started. Let us go forth and practically try to magnify the name of the Lord, to express our gratitude to God. Go home and speak well of God. Gather your children together and tell them what a good and great God he's been. Some of you have a swarm of youngsters. You could not do better than to spend half an hour telling them of his goodness to you in all your times of trouble. Leave your children the heritage of gratitude. Tell them how good the Lord was to their father and how good he will be to their children. Tell your servants. That's a different world, obviously. Tell your servants. Tell your work people. Tell anybody with whom you come in contact what a blessed God the Lord is. For my part, I can never speak well enough of his adorable name. He is the best of masters. His service is a delight. He is the best of fathers. His commands are my pleasure. Was there ever such a God as our God, our enemies themselves being judges? Magnify his name by the brightness of your countenances. Rejoice and be glad to him. When you're in sorrow and must fast, 
Yet appear not unto men to fast, but anoint your faces. Wear a smile. Let not the world think that the servants of the king go mourning all their days. Make the world know what a great God you serve and what a blessed Savior Christ is. And thus always let your soul magnify the Lord. Magnify the Lord. God grant you the grace to do so. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and exalt his name forever. Amen.